You're listening to TIP. A lot of people in our space, these syndicator groups are looking for the short-term, one to three-year kind of fix, flip, return capital. It's totally like the anti-finding a good company and holding it and finding a great company and buying it at a good price and holding it long-term kind of thing. So I try to apply those principles now to real estate where... In this week's episode, I talk with Keith Wasserman about Adam Newman's new venture, how Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have inspired his real estate investing, building wealth versus getting rich quick, holding properties for the long term, compounding, and much more. Keith Wasserman founded Gelt Inc. in 2008 during the height of the recession and financial meltdown. Keith has been involved in the acquisition of several commercial, industrial, and residential properties, mainly in the Western U.S., now totaling over $1.9 billion in assets. Yes, that's with a B. As co-founder of Happy Home Communities in 2017, Keith added the manufactured home venue to the growing list of entrepreneurial ventures he's involved in. He oversees the company's operations, marketing, investor relations, acquisitions, leasing, development, and disposition services. Keith graduated in 2007 from the University of Southern California from the Marshall School of Business. Keith leads Gelt's charitable giving program and recently teamed up with Damian Langier to form the Resident Relief Foundation, a 501c3 public nonprofit whose focus is on helping renters avoid eviction upon an unexpected financial emergency. Keith is also a member of YPO, which is Young President's Organization. Keith's Warren Buffett-style approach is very similar to how I think about real estate too. So I really enjoyed this episode, and I hope you guys enjoy it too. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Keith Wasserman. Keith, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. I want to start out our conversation today with a topic that's been in the news a little bit lately, at least for those who follow real estate and venture capital a bit. And that is Adam Newman is raising money again. And for people who are familiar with the name, but don't really know what he did, he was the founder and and man behind WeWork. And he's been in the news because of all of that money that he raised for his newest ventures. Break down for us for who hasn't heard the news, what's going on, what he's doing, how he raised capital, basically just break down everything that's going on with that story. Yeah. I mean, I think you know as much as I know, as much as uh, everyone else that's not involved in the transaction. I put out there on Twitter, if anyone has any inside information to uh, you know slip into my DMs, but essentially there's just a lot of um, ideas on what's going to be done. And you, know, you can read what Mark Andreessen put out there and it is definitely a big swing, but A, you don't know is the 350 million, does some of it go towards any purchase of real estate? I mean, it, which is really capital intensive. If it was straight into a, a newly formed entity that hasn't even started business yet as a pre-seed round, sure, that's pretty uh, impressive and crazy. But we work, I think all the early investors probably did well with it. I mean, all the, the subsequent money that was raised later on got hosed. But I'm just cu- as curious as anyone else, what's the actual business model going to be? 
I do think there could be some more innovation in the multifamily space in terms of the technology used and maybe the way we think of housing as we know it. And look, he, he didn't create the co-working concept that was being done by multiple other firms, but he made it sexy and cool and he established a brand and it became, you know, just uh, at the tip of the tongue, you want to come to the WeWork or, you know, our, our, one of our startups I was involved with, we, we were in a WeWork until we outgrew it. But I definitely, you know, like the concept and maybe he's going to do something similar in the uh, multifamily industry to create a brand. And, you know, I was reading about maybe some kind of way for apartment renters to gain ownership in their property which would be, you know, unique. Rent to own is not totally new, but maybe he has a different mechanism for it involving crypto. Who, who knows? There's a lot of speculation, but um, I'm interested to see what, what he has to do in the space for sure. He did get a lot wrong with WeWork, but he did get a lot right too. I mean, he did kind of make WeWork the name as like synonymous with co-working space, kind of like Airbnb or, or Velcro. People don't know that Velcro, those little strips that connect together, that's not actually called Velcro. That's the brand that's behind that. The actual like technology is called hook and loop. And so he did, he did kind of the same idea with WeWork. But I'm curious from your perspective, as somebody who raises capital for your real estate deals, and just knowing how important it is to vet the sponsor and, and for the investors to be confident in the person that they're investing in, what do you think about somebody kind of still backing Adam after everything that happened with WeWork? Look, it's obviously Mark Andreessen being you know contrarian. It's a big bet. You know, in the VC world, they like backing repeat founders. Look, WeWork does have a current market cap of around four billion dollars, and at one time thirty or forty billion. I think it was just bad uh, governance. I think they just grew way too fast. I know people in the co-working space that have done very well just on a, with a smaller platform. They don't have as many offices, and but it's a very profitable business for them. They started it. Actually, they acquired a bankrupt company during, I think, the last downturn that was doing that. this kind of co-working spaces and executive office suites, etc. I think backing someone, if he has a chip on his shoulder, and sure, he, he it's a lot of people are like, oh, you know, you need to back people that are uh, from scratch, that don't come from this backgrounds, that... But look, he's got away with charming people and creating a business and he willed it into a worldwide company, this WeWork, right? And even though a lot of early um, employees got hosed and a lot of investors that came on later got hosed, it's still a publicly traded company. And yeah, he made out like a bandit for himself. But I think TBT, I think it's you know $350 million bet. I, you don't know how it's structured. How, like I said, how much is going towards any real estate? How much is going towards a new venture? What kind of controls the investor has? And it's out of a multi-billion dollar fund probably. So even if it does go to a zero, it's still a big swing and it's not going to affect it. When we're investing in real estate, we can't have any zeros. We're all about preserving wealth and growing it safely over time. And if it's done out of a large fund, if it's a small percentage, then they could take those kind of swings. But generally when a company gets so much so early, I haven't seen any real big successes. It reminds me of like Quibi. They raised like a billion dollars right off the shoot and they had big names behind it. And sure, the concept might've been good, but there's just Things just generally do better organically, starting smaller and growing momentum and compounding over time versus just out of the chute going big like that. There's a book, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, and you've definitely heard of the author, but Damon John, the shark from Shark Tank, he has a book called The Power of Broke. And he talks about in that book how people who are broke, and you know, he talks about, he extrapolates it to companies too, and how companies with a little bit of money, if they figure out a way and they get hungry and they find creative ways and that, that helps them versus people that are just starting with a ton of money or companies that raise a ton of money, they actually are often at a disadvantage because they just don't have that kind of like chip on their shoulder. Yeah. And they're not as resourceful and stuff. They just throw money at it to solve issues when maybe there's no real product market fit, or maybe they got to figure out a way before they start pouring the, the money on the fire cut to make it bigger. So for sure. Yeah, exactly. The, the listeners of the show who have been around for a while know that 
my background before getting into real estate investing was studying the stock market and that I'm a huge Warren Buffett fan. If, if anybody's watching the video, the, a lot of the books on my shelf behind me are Warren Buffett books. This seems to be a bit of an uncommon position, at least from my experience in the real estate world. But I do see you tweeting about Charlie Munger and his principles pretty frequently, especially recently. How have Warren and Charlie's philosophies impacted how you do business? And how do you apply their business and investing principles to real estate? A lot of people in our space, these syndicator groups are looking for the short-term one to three-year kind of fix-flip return capital. It's totally like the anti-finding a good company and holding it and finding a great company and buying it at a good price and holding it long-term kind of thing. So I try to apply those principles now to real estate where we're buying, you know, A-plus real estate and at very fair kind of prices and just holding long-term and you get all the tax benefits. Charlie and Warren are angry about how people uh, are just flipping properties. It's like day trading, right? It's like, why sell the golden goose laying the golden eggs? Especially if a market has high barriers to entry and just keeps improving with population growth and job growth and the replacement cost just keeps getting more expensive to build. Why, you know, why, why sell something? Instead, just keep holding it, holding it, and then refinancing it and pulling out money, tax deferred. It's more tax efficient. You don't have the long-term capital gain plus all the recapture. So yeah, I try to apply those kind of principles from my just the buy and hold mentality, which I didn't really understand until like later on in life about the power of compounding and how just holding long-term and everyone wants instant gratification. And like, it's really, you know, all about just staying at something for a long period of time, doing it over and over. And in one year, 20% doesn't sound, wow, it's, it's 20% doesn't sound like life-changing. But if you do 20% for year over year over year compounding, then you'll be as rich as Buffett because that's literally what he's been doing, like a 20% kager for 60 plus years, right? It's just really interesting to me, the power of compounding and uh, long-term thinking. Let's dive into that, that a little bit more. A common thread throughout your online presence, whether it's your Twitter bio, company website, or even what you tweet and retweet, it's that you compound, like you said, and that you think long-term. A lot of the listeners of this show are newer investors, and I think they're often struck by shiny object syndrome, and they bounce from strategy to strategy in hopes of getting rich quick. How did you shift your mindset from getting rich quick to building wealth slowly? And how, do you, how would you help someone who is currently struggling with this dynamic in their own life? I mean, I've made all those mistakes, right? Like I didn't understand it early on, and I bought companies, public companies that I wasn't planning to hold my life. Like if, if you're not willing to hold it for a long period of time, a decade, two decades, multiple decades, then why buy it at all? Right? Like I've made that mistake. And with real estate, we bought stuff just because it was cheap. Doesn't make it a good deal and stuff. Like I, I've done that mistake too. And you know, I think I've just learned from mistakes. I'm, I'm lucky that I started investing in my real estate business very early in life. So now I still have a good amount of runway left to fix these mistakes. And hopefully my children about, you know, it's all about shiny object syndrome. And for sure, I've, I've done it. I've made a lot of those mistakes myself. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. 
That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. You mentioned that you're a big fan of compounding, but it seems like to me that this term or the idea of compounding is thrown around pretty frequently. You see it on Twitter a lot, but I don't think it's really, it's really rarely explained for newer investors. For those listening who might not know exactly what you mean when you say that you're always trying to compound, explain what it is and why it's so powerful. Literally, someone asked me the other day the definition of compounding, and I, I couldn't even really explain it in words, but I showed them a chart of like something that goes like this at a steady rate of motion to something that sort of hockey sticks with time. So like compounding, the easiest way is monetarily with money. Like if you, if you did showed like 10% per year non-compounded, it's the same dollar amount you're adding every year. But if you do 10% compounded on the previous year, if you're doing, it just starts really over time skyrocketing. And it's hard to even imagine compounding. Like I literally had to sit with a calculator and I didn't even understand. I didn't even believe it. I'm like, I I think I said, what if someone starts with a million bucks, which is a a lot of money, but if someone starts with a million bucks, doesn't put any more money into it. If they're able to hit that 20% per year, which is like extremely hard to do over a long period of time. I think it was like 35 years, they become a billionaire without adding any money to it, which was just mind blowing to me, but it starts slow. Like you know, 1 million to 1.2 to, you know, I don't know, I can't do it in my head, but it's like, it starts sort of like this and then goes, and that's what my career has been. Like it took my first five years. I still lived at home. You know, I had very minimal expenses and it's, it was sort of by design, but also by necessity. And like, I'm glad that I didn't spend much of my early monies. And that's the benefit of like starting a business early. You want to keep your personal burn rate really low and sort of, you know, run your, your family and your expenses, like to be perfect for compounding, like keep it really low and earn more than you spend kind of thing. People just, they start making money and you have lifestyle creep and like all these things happen. But I think the trick is just keep making more money than you spend and investing it at the highest rate of return, risk adjusted. And for a long period of time, the earlier you start, the better. If you, if you just, you got to just play around with the calculator and look at compounding graphs and you'll see the difference. It's remarkable. And it could, it could go the other way too, compounding the wrong way, like reputation compounds, right? Like I never understood that. You know, my dad's always like, you're your reputation. Reputation is so important. 
It takes one minute to knock it off, like a lifetime to build. And now I understand like every little thing I've done, every person I interact with along the way, like it just builds your reputation because that person then interacts with 50, hundred other people and that person are, and like you could pretty quickly build a pretty good or pretty bad reputation based on how you act with people in, in this world. How do you apply that in real estate with your real estate investing approaches? It's totally like dealing with the brokers. There's a very limited amount of brokers that work with us. We're buying buildings that are generally 200 units and up in maybe four core markets. So there's maybe a few dozen brokers that are actively marketing our deals. So just having a great reputation as a closer and a performer and someone that doesn't come in and retrades. And we want to be at the top of the list when these brokers are marketing deals or not marketing. Maybe the seller allows them to bring them to a few groups off market. We want to be at the top of that list for the brokers. And same same goes to the sellers. Like There's maybe a thousand groups in the country that are constantly buying and selling these larger apartment communities. Just building that reputation. Maybe I haven't met, I mean, I for sure haven't met all thousand, but I've met probably at least a hundred of them. And, but they talk to their peers and like, we want to just be known as the preeminent buyer of these kind of properties. And I didn't understand it completely. Like I started buying mobile home parks and doing some other VC stuff. And it's like, if we would have just focused and not done these other things, sure, we made money on them, but it didn't go towards compounding our reputation in the industry and knowledge in the industry. And like just focus I've learned over the years is so important. And now I understand why like, you know, Buffett and Munger, they'll, they'll look at hundreds of pitches and only swing when the real fat ones come and go big and concentrate on those. And it's the same concept of just concentration and focus and not being distracted for the compounding. You recently tweeted that time and inflation are a real estate's best friend which you then followed up by retweeting a tweet from Jonathan Barr that said, and I'm going to read it real quick. I made more off three properties that I held over 10 years than my share of the profits of 400 flips during the same period with a fraction of the effort. Holding long-term is powerful. I've had some operators on the show who hold or own assets similar to yours, hundreds of units, but they only hold them for two to five years and then they sell them because they've achieved, and I always ask them why, And they say it's because they've achieved their target return. They can return the capital to their investors and they're happy. And so they sell them. And I can see the thought process behind that, but it always struck me as odd, kind of like you said, is that they would sell a great asset. They have to redeploy that capital into something that's relatively unknown. And you already have an asset that's performing really well. You know it, you know it well, like just kind of, there's a little bit of a disconnect there for me. How do you think about this? And how do you typically manage your whole periods with your real estate portfolio? That Jonathan Barr quote, was really eye-opening to me because, you know, I know him personally, great guy and stuff, but he, yeah, he's, and I've been, I've done some of that too, where you flip he, 400 flips, he, he would have made the same amount of money as just holding three deals or whatever. What, like you said, it's pretty just eye-opening, just that time and inflation are real estate's best friends. And like one of my mentors who became very, very wealthy, just buy and hold and he never sold. And he did this for probably 70 years from twenties to 90 years old till till he passed. Like he became a multi-billionaire and he started with nothing, like literally cleaning. He was a worker that cleaned construction sites and then started his own cleanup crew kind of company to clean up construction sites. And then started investing in little tiny projects and then building a little bigger buildings and a little bit bigger and buying a little bigger and just kept pushing the envelope. And like, I think uh, he kept telling me time and inflation are real estate's best friends. And now I totally understand why. And yeah, it's tempting to think like, oh, in you know, a few years, I totally renovate the building and I achieve my business plan. I hit a great IRR and whatnot. And, but in, the IRRs could be great. But in terms of multiples on the money, it's like if you just hold long-term, if it's a great property and you're taking good care of it and you know it, like it's better just to hold, hold it longer and just keep pulling tax-deferred monies out because 
yeah, when you sell, then you have like all those, you're starting so much lower. So now you're investing those monies over a long period of time versus the monies without taxes taken out of it. You have to like literally hit a way higher return or to get back to where you were. It's like selling a stock, like selling a stock that's appreciated, right? Instead, just borrow against it and you're, you can write off the interest. And if you do it prudently, you don't want to lever up like crazy. But I mean, my dad's owned stock in like Nike for 20 years. He put like, I don't know, 10 grand in it and it's worth like 200 grand now or something. It's the same thing, compounding, buying good, great companies and for a long period of time. And yeah, the trick is how to identify those great companies. I just met a great young man named Jake Davidson that pushing off my... I have stocks in my SEP IRA 401k and I'm going to open up a small stock account. I, you know, Being a real estate guy, you're never that liquid because you're always putting money into real estate, which is then locks it up. But like every do- additional dollar I want to earmark to the market, I'm just going to give him because all day he just reads like Buffett. He's reading about companies, all the whatever you call them, 8Ks, 10Qs. He's going to the on-site visits with the management or going to the stores himself, like constantly reading. And he picks like 16 companies to invest in. And every year he maybe peels off one or buys one. You know, And I think that's the only way to like beat the market. Otherwise, most people are better off just buying the index for the stock market. And that's great if you could compound it that 8% per year. But the problem is most people get emotional to sell at the wrong time and buy at the wrong time. And that's why they don't even hit the market returns, which I've learned. You founded your real estate firm in 2008. I found this really interesting. You founded it in 2008 during the height of the recession and the financial meltdown. Why get into real estate at exactly the point where it was one of the most hated asset classes? Going back to what we've talked about throughout the whole episode so far is, is this related to Buffett and Munger and how they always talk about being greedy when others are fearful? I know you didn't necessarily know their concepts yet, but now looking back, are you thinking that's that's maybe what was happening there? Yeah, 100%. I mean, the margin of safety is so great when something's so depressed, there's nowhere to go but up, literally. I mean, it could have faltered a little more, gone down a little more. Sure, you can never catch the bottom, but things were so depressed and blood was in the street. And that's yeah, the best time to start a business, to buy something, to get involved in something like when there's when the expectations are just so low, right? And there, there's nowhere to go but up, right? Like when you hit rock bottom or something, there's nowhere to go but up. Same thing. Yeah, it's the real estate presented an opportunity to me and my cousin and we sort of pounced on it and not knowing, you know, in my lifetime, that was like a really good entry point. And um, I think it's cyclical. Eventually, it's already happening. Prices are down right now, 10 to 25%, depending on what the property is and where in the multifamily space. Right now, we're, um, we're taking advantage of that and, and starting to make some acquisitions. We, were, we paused for a little while to see what's going on, like everyone else kind of with the in- interest rates rising so fast. But um, for long-term holders, yeah, this, this provided a nice little entry point. We're buying a deal right now in core Southern California. The buyer pool is very thin, but yeah. I want to talk a bit about that process of buying from a publicly traded REIT. But before we get to that, I'm curious, what was your experience with real estate prior to founding your real estate firm? Had you owned any rental properties or done any flips personally before you got started? I was always been an entrepreneur. I've never had a job. Literally, my, my dad set me up with this like big developer in town, the guy that said time and inflation are real estate's best friends. And I, I didn't make it. Literally, I called my dad. I'm like, I can't do this. I don't mind pushing papers and filing for myself for my own business, but I'm not going to do it for someone else. But um, I started literally had no knowledge. I mean, my cousin and I started with a, a fourplex. You know, we got an FHA loan, which was only two and a half percent down. Got a cash advance on his credit card to do the rehab, and that's what put us in business. My dad's an attorney by trade, but him and my mom built this little strip center here. They invested with a few of my dad's clients that were in real estate. So like tangentially understood about real estate. And my dad knew he was smart enough to know that he's made more money in real estate than his law practice. Even though he had 80 attorneys, he literally from a few little pieces of property made more money over the years. I think uh, 
literally, I, I just learned by doing. Damien, my cousin and business partner, his dad was out there in Bakersfield buying and renovating like five, six, 10 unit kind of small apartment buildings and just very hands-on himself, like literally walking the building with the contractors. And we, that's how we learn. And, and, and Damien, we, we were driving up there every week, two hours each way and paying all the, the people that were working, inspecting the work and literally just being very hands-on and learning the business by doing. That's, that's the best education. You know, People always ask, is it better to do that? Is it better to get a job? It just depends. A job is great because you get paid for learning sort of, right? But I just, I'm unemployable. Like I, I just can't be an employee. I'm too, can't do it. It's not in my, my genes. Let's go back to the publicly traded REITs. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about that. I, I don't even know anything really about the process. I, I guess I don't even know truthfully what questions to ask, but I guess just tell us a little bit about how that comes about. Do they do publicly traded REITs list their properties on with brokers only? Do they go to market? Like how does just walk us through that whole process? I just learned this myself. We haven't bought that from that many REITs and they sell generally when their stock price is down because they use those proceeds to buy back shares. You see that with a lot of companies that are well run when their stocks are down and they think it's a value, they'll reinvest in buying back shares versus you know, spending the money and giving dividends to the shareholders. Right now, the market's down and they're peeling off a lot of assets in different markets. This one happened to be in one of our target markets here in SoCal. It's a 2009 build asset. It was institutionally built, institutionally owned. It's in great shape. And yeah, I mean, generally, like we're a big player and stuff, but these kind of buildings generally go to other kind of REITs and stuff, but they're sort of out of the market now. And it leaves opportunity for entrepreneurial guys like, and gals like ourselves. I remember when we started in Phoenix, they were selling everything in Phoenix. Equity Residential was offloading all their portfolio in Phoenix. And generally, I mean, that was just a really bad time. People like ourselves, we bought you know, a few from different REITs, but everything that was bought during those times have gone up so much. They, were just, they weren't the best at timing it, but maybe they bought back their stock. You know, like, like, like I said, maybe they used those monies and bought back the stock. Maybe the stock's performed. I, mean, I haven't really tracked it since 2010 to see how it's done. But um, yeah, they, they market it just like anyone else with, with the property. And they brought it to market and we have great broker relationships. And um, we're very lucky to have been selected as the buyer. And we came in with very aggressive terms and you know, a market price, a fair price. And at these big price points, it's hard to like steal a building from you know mom and pop once in a while. You could buy something that's... But with the internet and all the information, it's all out there. You got to either be long-term thinking or see something that other people don't see, you know, and really to, to create that alpha. Same in the stock market. It's like, there's no asymmetric information unless you're insider trading or whatever, right? But it, all the information is pretty much readily available, but you got to just have a long-term mindset or see other things that other people aren't saying. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. 
Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. I think what we're seeing today is is pretty far from the financial meltdown of 2008, or at least it has been so far. But having been through that time, how did the beginning stages of what we're experiencing today compare to what you saw back then? I remember back then the market, stock market was falling every day, 500,000 points. Like it was just in such turmoil. And I guess we are down now pretty heavily like on the NASDAQ, but you could have said it was maybe overinflated. Back then, I remember reading the Wall Street Journal. Every day I opened it, you see 10,000 job losses, 20,000 job losses. Like I see some companies that are sort of aren't profitable and stuff. Yeah, they're the tech guys. They're laying off a few people here and there, a few hundred. It's nothing like I saw back then. And unemployment right now is like historical low again, I think, right? Didn't it go back to during COVID? It shot up because people couldn't go into the office and work and things were shut down. But I'm surprised how quickly it bounced back. And I, I, I think the economy is just too strong and too hot. And that's why they're trying to curb the inflation and really rise rates and slow it down a little. And I think we're, it's just a different, totally different thing than what I was seeing in 09. I'm 37. So I didn't really see the... I was six or seven when the early 90s thing hit. So I don't, I don't know what happened exactly back then. I, mean, I, I could read about it, but I wasn't there to, to see that distress and that crisis. And, um, but every, yeah, every 10 years, there's some kind of like, you know, fallback. But like, if you have the dry powder and the, the be able to like withstand those downturns, the, the next high will be much higher. And those downturns will be great buying opportunities. Some of the markets that you're invested in are a bit unique to me, at least based on the previous guests that I've had on the show and kind of where I invest myself. Many of the guests, even those who are similar to you and based in California, they invest in many of the same markets in the same states, which include Texas, Florida, the Carolinas, etc. A few of the markets that you're investing in that interest me are New Mexico, Washington, and Utah. California interested me a little bit too, but mostly those three. What made you pick those markets? And what are you seeing in those markets that make for a good investment opportunity? 
So like we're so opportunistic. We're market driven. Once we pick a market, we then go heavy and try to buy at least a thousand units in that market because all our time and energy and compounding, we want to just focus. We started in Bakersfield in 2000, December of 08 or 09, because we saw the opportunity to buy stuff very depressed. And the industry was based on oil and agriculture, which we thought would come through really nicely through the recession. Oil was still like $130 a barrel. And they did start adding tons of jobs. And looking back, that was actually a good market in the beginning. And then Phoenix, we came in 2010 to 2015. We were buying heavily when blood was in the street. Our thought there was like, Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the United States. It's not going anywhere. I didn't realize it was going to diversify so much in terms of employment and stuff, but and come back so quickly, but it really did. I mean, it took years, but that's pretty quickly compared to where it was. I mean, rents were down 20% and some apartment buildings were like half empty and housing prices got killed there because they were just the poster child for the housing boom and bust. Then in 2016, we went into Denver. We saw all the migration patterns of millennials and just so many people, young people moving there and job growth and just, you know, the four seasons and the cities just was already booming for a few years. But I'm like, wow, this is going to keep continuing. And it really has. Salt Lake City, we were so early there compared to our peers. It was not considered like a primary market or even a secondary market. It was sort of like a tertiary market. It's pretty small, but such a dynamic little town, very business friendly, youngest, you know, state in the nation in terms of population. We used to joke like they're like babies having babies. You see young people carrying babies and it's just so many so much driving that and very educated population because of all the, the missions that they go on. They speak multiple languages. You got like Goldman Sachs's second largest office outside of Manhattan. We learned early on that was in Salt Lake and fell in love with that market, bought around 1,000 units there. And then, yeah, we, we moved next uh, to Reno. We were pre-Tesla on Reno. That might've been a little earlier. We got lucky on that one. I, we invested with a partner, a mentor and friend of mine, and we did very well there. The ones we didn't do well on were Texas, which we had two in San Antonio, about 600 units we bought. They were older buildings. They had a lot of just deferred maintenance and issues. And during COVID, we got killed with collections. So we sold that when the market was hot. We got out for like an 8 to 10 IRR, which was lower than our 12 to 14 or whatever we projected. But we were very happy to then redeploy that capital via 1031 into a much better asset. We were in Seattle for for a hot minute for a few years with around 500 units. We sold those during COVID because of also collection issues. You know, it was very uh, anti, you know, being able to collect rent there and, you know, you don't have to pay your rent kind of thing. So we, we sold those and same thing, 8 to 10 IRR, walked away with a single and we're very happy. And then the, uh, the four, okay, Albuquerque, New Mexico came about five years ago. We saw there was no new development in the pipeline and we spent a lot of time out there and we're like, this is a good market, slow and steady. During the last recession, very few buildings, if any, I don't think any that were like of size went back to the lenders and stuff. And they didn't see such great rent growth, but they didn't see the rents decline. And I'm like, okay, we're already five, six, seven years into the cycle. Let's park some money here. And looking back, it was like amazing. We, we started seeing some huge rent growth over the last couple of years. And even more importantly, it became more of a, I don't, I don't know if you call it a primary market, but like bigger investors started going there, like the Kennedy Wilsons of the worlds and larger investors that before would redline that market. And they're like, no Albuquerque. They started investing there and drove cap rates down, which means like the multiples up. And we're like, here, you could take this building. It's a great building. I'm probably gonna regret it 20 years from now. But at this time, we're, we bought it at a six plus cap. We're selling it at a, you know around a three plus cap. Let's redeploy the market, redeploy into a higher barrier to entry market, Southern California versus you know breaking bad territory. I mean, we were Albuquerque was good to us, but that's like a we felt like a real good timing kind of market. And you know, we we since sold in Phoenix. Unfortunately, everything in 2017 or 18, we lost out on a lot of growth there. But that market right now is getting smacked. I think 
values are down around 20%, give or take. And there could be some blood in that market, especially with a lot of borrowers borrowing it, very high leverage, floating rate, term debt, especially if rents, they're already coming down. They're, they're growing, but not at that crazy rate they were. And once they, if they flatline or decline, then there could be some, another big buying opportunity in that market. How do you think about the laws and regulations that are in California? I know you have over 2,000 units there. Sounds like you're buying another deal there right now. You've done a lot of deals there in the past. Clearly, you're okay with it, but I'm curious about how you think about the regulatory environment and being a really tenant-friendly state and and how you think about that when you're investing. Yeah, I think it's priced in. And if it wasn't priced in, it's all about risk-adjusted returns. So I think it's all priced in and I'd rather take that risk at these great prices than park my money at nosebleed valuations like they were in, you know, a few months ago in, in the Phoenixes and, and the Vegases and, you know, the more boom and bust markets that are very transitory in terms of population. And um, there's such high barriers to entry here in Southern California where we're buying a building now in Studio City in the, in the, in the valley, the best part of the valley, in my opinion. They, there's only been three buildings built over 100 units in the last 25 years. It's so hard to add new properties and add to build and everyone like entry level housing is two and a half million starting in Studio City. It's going to create people that just need a rent and the rents are going to have upward pressure. And this particular building is not subject to LA rent control because of its age. It's a newer building. So like, yeah, I had, it's a harder slog raising money because people read the headlines of like California. I don't want to invest in California. I don't want to be part of the politics there, et cetera. But like, I've seen this story before and it's like long term, I think 10 years from now, we're going to be 20 years from now. I mean, we're going to be so happy we, we own these kind of buildings versus you know, chasing yield in other markets that are more boom and bust and cyclical. And um, so that's why we sort of try to zig when others zag, especially if we are very bullish on an area like Southern California. I've been pretty interested in starting my own nonprofit and I've actually already received the legal 501c3 designation from the IRS. So I'm curious to learn a bit more about your nonprofit, the Resident Relief Foundation and what you're doing with it. Tell me a little bit more about how it works. We were seeing in our buildings that a lot of residents that have been there a long time, they fell on a hardship, unexpected job loss, some kind of medical bill, like they weren't able to make their rent for either a partial month rent or for a few months. And we had to go through with the whole eviction and like process and serve them and whatever, because of fair housing laws. And we just couldn't pick and choose who we wanted to help and not help. And like, we thought there has to be a, a win-win scenario. And um, we created Resident Relief Foundation and we help identify residents from across many people's portfolios that are good residents and they've they've been in the building for x period of time and i think at first they couldn't have had a late payment now they i think they can have have some kind of late payment but we give them financial literacy courses we help them with like resume building and we provide relief in the form of rent payment the landlord sometimes like drops the late fee portion of it and we've given as little as a few hundred dollars to help make a partial month rent up to thousands of dollars that help people stay in their homes for multiple months. And it's uh, a win for the landlord and for the management company because they don't have to have the huge expense of eviction and the downtime of a vacant unit and all the turn costs. Uh, all that added up are thousands of thousands, 10,000 plus dollars, tens of thousands potentially. It's good for society because about two thirds of these people didn't have any other places to go and, and would have been homeless. And homelessness is a huge issue and it's plaguing a lot of our cities. And it's obviously good for the person because they, it prevents them from being on the streets. And housing stability is so important in people's lives and psyches. And like, if they have that, then they can get on easier with, with their life and not have all the emotional issues and problems that not having a house or a roof over their head will provide. We've helped hundreds of people stay in their homes. And we've saved probably taxpayers millions of dollars. It costs so much to build these 
units and stuff. And it's so hard to get help once you're on the streets and it costs so much more. Might as well prevent people from being on the streets than um, allowing them to flounder. And so try to catch them earlier on in the process. And our goal is to get more foundations, you know, very wealthy, you know, family foundations and public support and just be able to help thousands and then 10,000 plus people. And the more the merrier. There's a lot of people that, that are just responsible, just leading that paycheck to paycheck life and not, you know, having any uh, resources and just, so we're trying to train them, but also give them a hand up in the process. Are you able to use that on your own properties that you own? We've done it, I think once maybe out of the few hundred. I mean, we got to be careful with like self-dealing and stuff. Yeah. As I say, there's no conflict of interest there. Yeah, exactly. We originally called it Gelt Foundation, but then I'm like, you're alienating all the other owners and management companies. And yeah, it's literally just like we're trying to do good in our, in our industry. Without renters, we wouldn't have a business. So how do we help the industry as a whole and create a name for ourselves as being the founders of this awesome nonprofit? So we changed the name to Resident Relief Foundation. And we've helped dozens of large management companies and other owner operators and hundreds of families that needed the assistance. I think it's really cool what you guys are doing. Keith, as we wrap up the show, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where the best place is to go to find you and connect with you. We can jam on Twitter. That's my favorite uh, medium, my favorite vice of all the social medias. And yeah, it's just Keith underscore Wasserman. You know, you just search for compounding or Gelt or Keith and you'll, you'll find me probably at the top of the, the list there. But, or you can shoot me an email always. I, if it's a well thought out email, you shoot me an email at Keith at GeltInc.com. It's G-E-L-T-I-N-C.com. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm here for anyone that's interested in doing what we're doing, investing in real estate and um, or just long-term thinking and compounding. You know, that's, those are things I'm uh, sort of known for nowadays. So. Keith, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to, to meet with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show, Robert. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.